0: Hello, this is Jim Stein, your host for New Books in Mathematics. Our guest today is Ellie Mayor, the author of Music by the Numbers. Most of us have heard of the math music connection, but this is the book that explains what that connection is and how both math and music connect to both physics and biology. There are wonderful anecdotes detailing the lives and creations of many of the great musicians, mathematicians, scientists, and philosophers who have contributed to creating music and our understanding of it. If you love music, and who doesn't, you'll enjoy reading this book even if you don't love math. And maybe even if you don't love math, you'll have a greater appreciation for it after you finish the book. Ellie, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Thank you. I loved your introduction. Thank you.
0: You're very welcome. Ellie, what gave you the idea for writing this book? Well,
1: that goes back to my early childhood i um my grandfather, who um emigrated from Germany to Israel, had a great intellectual influence on me, and among other things, he brought with him a physics book in German that he studied from when he was a student. That book was published in eighteen ninety seven I still have it, and it made a big impression on me. There was a chapter on sound, and there was a musical staff showing the note A, and next to it, the number 440. And that intrigued me. What does a number have to do with music? So he explained to me that that's actually the frequency of the note A, and every note has a certain frequency, and that um, made an impression on me. So that was the starting point. I must have been seven, eight years old.
0: Yeah, I think we all have incidents like that in our lives that sort of trigger our interest in things. You know, you start off the book by discussing what physics and music had in common at the turn of the 20th century. Could you tell our audience about it?
1: Yes, okay. That actually... Made me uh, triggered my um, uh, journey in writing that book. It's not so much that they had in common, but they, they, they moved along parallel lines. There were two major crises, one in physics and one in classical music around the turn of the century. The one in physics had to do with relativity, basically. The idea that either any frame, universal frame of reference to which everything can be referred to, and the common notion was, yes, there is the ether which should permeate all of of, um, space, and through which electromagnetic waves should propagate, but there were several attempts to prove the existence of the ether, and they all failed, and so Einstein finally gave the correct answer that there isn't any ether. It's just a fiction, and uh, electromagnetic waves don't even need any material uh, medium to propagate in. So that was one one major crisis, and of course, in in 1900, also Max Planck came up with the idea of uh, quanta of energy, which was a second revolutionary idea in in, in uh, physics that, n- n- uh, contrary to Newtonian physics. A uh, apparently energy is not continuous, as we all had thought, but goes in little particles. So that, these are two major crises in physics. And around that same time, there was also a crisis in music. And so now we have to make a change in, in gears to classical music. Now, from, I would say, about 1600, all of classical music, and I'm talking mainly about Western music, was based on the idea of tonality. So a piece had to be written in a certain key, and as the piece evolved, the music could stray away and um, move into different keys, but eventually the whole piece was anchored to that single key. And therefore, that key was like a reference system for the music. You always related every note in the mu- music, every note of the scale had some musical relationship to the to the tonic, the, the basic tone, basic note of that key. And all the works that we so much love, Mozart and Haydn and Beethoven, all were based on that uh, principle of tonality. But then, toward the end of the 19th century, composers began to deviate from that principle. And if you listen to music, to, to the music of even already Berlioz, who lived in the uh, sec- first half of the 19th century, already strayed from tonality. And uh, much more so in the music of Mahler and Wagner, the sense of belonging to a Key, a basic key, a, a tonality, became more and more vague. So uh, th- that that uh, that was a, a big issue in classical music. What, what should we relate to music? What, what reference system should we should we use? And that brought up upon the uh, mm-hmm. composer Arnold Schoenberg, who invented a totally different system of writing music based on his series, or 12-tone music, that a series should uh, comprise of all the 12 semitones of the octave, but each should appear only once in the series before the series is completed. So basically that was a mathematical principle, but he thought that's the way music should go, and that created a... um, that was the um the crux of the uh, revolution or or crisis in classical music and the two the that crisis and the crisis in physics happened almost uh, at the same time. So that, that actually was the uh, um, the nucleus of my book. That's what gave me the idea to write that, uh, that book.
0: Well, you mentioned one of uh, my favorite composers, perhaps my favorite composer, namely Beethoven. And how did Beethoven revolutionize music?
1: Well, Beethoven again. I'm making a comparison here. Beethoven was to classical music what Newton was to classical physics. I think he totally changed the the emotional setting of music. Up until Beethoven, and I'm, I'm a little bit generalizing here at the risk of going too far, but music basically was meant to entertain, to please. Uh, sure, there are, in the great works of Bach, Johann Sebastian Bach, There was the um, uh, in, uh, listener was supposed to be in awe of God's creation, God's, um, God's might, and so on. But for the layman, for the ordinary people, music was meant to entertain. And there's a saying by Mozart, which I quote in my book, that music should always please the ear. Even in the most sad circumstances, music should never offend the ear. So that was the uh, the notion that music is meant to entertain. And here comes Beethoven and totally changes that whole uh, atmosphere by creating works of an, emotion, an enormous emotional impact that be compared to great literary works a, a, a work that should not entertain you but should simply arouse your um, your emotions and uh, even express ideas of universal brotherhood like in his ninth symphony that was a big 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 um, change also i should say the music of haydn mozart were mainly meant for the um, elite the rich and powerful who just enjoyed an evening with the company of the princes and uh, and counts and all the royalty, while Beethoven addressed his music to the whole world. So that was a big change. Big change. Incidentally, Beethoven... Died in 1827, exactly 100 years after Newton died in, in 1727. Interesting coincidence.
0: Uh, yeah, it's sort of like the uh, sort of like the coincidence involving Halley's comet and uh, that there were several very famous people who were born Rory. and died precisely when Halley's Comet came. I've forgotten exactly who at the moment. Um, one of the things that you did in your book is, after this introduction, what you basically do is you basically parallel the development of mathematics as it applies to music and music itself, taking it historically. And if you go back almost 2,500 years from the start of the 20th century, you hit Pythagoras. And what did Pythagoras do for with music.
1: Yeah, well, okay, Pythagoras, he, he was, a, as we all know, a philosopher, a mathematician, and he, that, that's the, the story goes, and I have to emphasize, we know nothing for sure about him, because we, he and the, his followers, the Pythagoreans, did not leave any written Legacy of what they what they did, and there are several reasons for that, and I I I mentioned that in the book, but he he uh, so all that we know about him is basically. Questionable, it was uh, written down by uh, scholars who lived hundreds of years after him and sometimes outdid each other to extol the greatness of the their master. So we have to take all of these stories in in, in grain in with in, in some grain, but he, according to legend, he walked down the street one day and heard some sonorous uh, uh, tones coming from from a blacksmith. So he went there to investigate and found that um, the hammer hit sheets of metal and the bigger or heavier the sheet of metal, the lower the tone. And that was a qualitative discovery that... um, a pitch pitch of sound is related to mass, to, to weight or mass, but that didn't satisfy him, so he went home and built himself a primitive instrument called the monochord, which literally means a single string stretched over a soundboard and with a ruler along it. And he discovered that if you let the string vibrate in its full length, it emits a certain tone. And if you cut that string into, uh, stop it in the middle, then each half will vibrate at a, a tone which uh, an octave higher. That, that the mm-hmm. interval pleased him very much, and he thought that is fundamental to music. The octave means the ratio of two to one and then he continued and find other ratios, like if you divide the string into three equal parts, each one will vibrate at three times the frequency of the whole whole string, so that uh, give, give, gave rise to an interval of three halves, a frequency ratio of three halves, which today we associate with the fifth, uh, in mus- musical terms, the fifth note of, of the scale. So he discovered a relationship between music and numbers, and that left a huge impression on him, and he thought that if music obeys mathematical rules, so so should the whole universe. Why that? Because you have to realize, in the Greek tradition, music ranked equal to math, and geometry, and astronomy. There were the four subjects of like uh, the quadrivium, the the four subjects that an educated person should master. Number theory, rather arithmetic, they called it arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, and music. And so if music follows mathematical rules, so should the universe. He made that huge leap And adopted the motto that number rules the universe. That was the Pythagorean motto, number rules the universe. Now, if I can just expand one more minute on that. that, that sounds like a wonderful principle, and it actually attracted many, many generations of philosophers and scientists, but in a way it did more harm to the development of science than any good, because that's a misleading principle. Just because we love music doesn't mean that the universe should follow those same rules. And generations of scientists followed that blind that end. The most famous example is Johannes Kepler, who at once is considered the father of modern astronomy. But at the, uh, at the same time, he was an ardent Pythagorean, who a mystic actually, who still believed in musical harmonies prevailing in the universe. And uh, tragically, he he sp- he spent some people would say wasted half his professional life. He didn't live that long; lived 60 years, half of it trying to find the laws of planetary motion based on the laws of musical harmony. And only finally he realized that that's not not the best path. And the ultimate triumph was that he replaced the old Greek circular orbits of planets with ellip-
0: ellipses. It's still mathematics, though. <laughs> it's
1: still <laughs> mathematics, yeah, but, but not, not, not based on musical <laughs> harmony.
0: Um, okay, so from uh, what we're doing now is we're going almost 1,500, 2,000 years from Pythagoras to Kepler, and then we reach the great scientist of that era, Galileo. And what did Galileo's dialogue say about music?
1: Yes, Galileo toward the end of his life, and he was already under house arrest after his infamous, infamous trial by the hands of the Inquisition. He uh, wrote a book, um, Discourses on Two, Two Sciences, and that discourse is like a, a um, friendly dialogue between four uh, friends, and uh, one of him, one of these friends is he himself under the disguise of Saliato. And they discuss all kinds of things, whatever comes to mind. And among them is the, um, if you can, is there any way to explain musical harmony, like consonants, sound that, um, sounds that sound pleasant to the ear based on mathematics or physics. And um, he then proposed an analogy between like the Pythagorean interval that I mentioned, octave, a fifth, and so on, he compared that to having two pendulums vibrate at the same ratio and creating a pleasant a, a visual image. Like when one completes one cycle while the other one completes two, that's a, a pleasing visual image. And so he compared the, the two, the visual image and the musical image. And in that, actually, he was wrong, because we know today that vision and hearing are totally different processes. But he made that analogy, and uh, they discuss all kinds of intervals, why some are beautiful, some are sounding good, and some not so good. The whole discussion of that. By the way, in that book, the uh, name frequency, I think, as far as I know, appears for the first time frequenza in, in Italian. He, he wrote a book in vernacular Italian, unlike all other scholars who wrote in Latin, that was the international uh, language of scientific discourse. He wanted to aim his book to the to the ordinary people, not to the scholars. So it's written in a very popular way, basically popular science, but good science.
0: You know, the next name that I encountered in your book was that of Mersenne, whom I knew as a mathematician. But I didn't yes. realize that Mersenne made a contribution to music as well.
1: Yes. Actually, some people say his musical contributions actually was greater than his mathematical contributions. He, I didn't know that either. In, if you are in math, the name is well known to any number theorist because he was interested in a certain class of prime numbers. I suppose everyone knows what a prime is, right? But um, certain primes, which are known now as Mersenne primes, go like 2 to the power of n minus 1. And for that to be a prime, n itself, the exponent, has to be a prime, because if n is not a prime, 2 to the n minus 1 is not a prime either. So he he discovered quite a few of these Mersenne primes and made some conjectures on them. And over the years, some of these conjectures turned out to be wrong. But remember, he lived contemporane- contemporaneously with Pallino, so he relied on paper and pencil. There weren't any computers and any computing devices like today. So he made some spectacular mistakes. But that was his contribution to math. And in my book, I mentioned several, the, the whole history of these Mersenne Primes is fascinating, full of drama, really drama. Believe it or not, even in math, there can be drama. And it's too long to discuss it verbally, but it's an interesting story, these Mersenne Primes. Much less known is that he was as much a music theorist as a mathematician, and wrote two huge volumes on music theory. And I have one in, in a replica, in a fac- facsimile form, like 600 pages of hundreds of illustrations of musical instruments and music quotes and tables and calculations. Basically, the Bible of music theory, as it was known during the early years of the Baroque music.
0: That, that's something I absolutely did not know. And then I encountered a name that I had never seen before, Joseph Silver. Who was he and what did he do?
1: Yes, he was also a, a same. He lived from 1653 to 1716. So he was a um, a contemporary of Marie Mersenne and Galileo and so on, a little, little bit later than Galileo. He was a Frenchman. And, um, he somehow got interested in music and in, in, in acoustics. Even though he had a hearing, uh, he was he- hearing, hearing impaired and he could barely hear tones. So he surrounded himself by some assistants who knew, who could hear music and they were his ears. Very, very moving story. How uh, someone who, it's a little bit like, um, a painter who is blind and cannot see. So he did all his research relying on the voice, the hearing abilities of his assistants. So very little is known about him, and his discoveries are, um, you rarely hear about them. He mainly discovered, I think that's his major contribution, he proved I'm hesitant to say discover, it may be that someone discovered it before him, but the idea of overtones, now if, if you let me, let me just explain in a minute, is that okay?
0: Oh yeah, it's your interview, right? and yeah. your book.
1: And there is that thing that, a, a string, let's talk about a string, you let it vibrate and it emits a tone, let's say C, the note C. But, along with it, there are higher tones which are called overtones or harmonics, like like a c above an octave above and then a fifth higher still, and so on in in theory to infinity and these overtones give the, the tone its timbre or its color musical colour that's why you can distinguish between the sound of a violin or a trumpet even if they play the same note because the structure of their overtones is different their spectrum acoustic acoustic spectrum is different so that, that may have been known before i suspect it was known before but no one could prove that these overtones are a physical reality People thought that's maybe a ghost, ghost sound that we imagine, and it's not real. Well, he proved that it's real. He put some pieces of paper on a string and watched how they, how they vibrate, and realized that that string can divide itself into one half or two halves of three-thirds, or four-fourths, and so on, and each part vibrates separately, independently from the others. And that basically confirmed that the existence of the, the overtones, so that was his major contribution.
0: You know, you were just discussing vibrating strings, and there's an interesting parallel that you make between the vibrating string debate and the debate on quantum mechanics in the 1920s and 1930s.
1: Yes. Well, okay, now we are moving like 50 years uh, later. In the 18th century, just after the discovery or invention, depending how you want to, to look at it, the discovery or invention of the differential and integral calculus independently by Newton and Leibniz, suddenly many, many problems, which hitherto were uh, unsolvable, suddenly became uh, solvable. With the help of calculus. And amazingly, one of the first problems to be tackled was the vibrating string. Somehow, and that, that fascinated me, that somehow of all the hundreds and hundreds of problems all around us, physical problems, the vibrating string aroused so much interest. I think that's because of music. Because music was so much deeply entrenched in people 's mind that the vibrating string was like a, a a symbol to them, and the the great mathematicians of the eighteenth century decided to solve the um, problem of the string, meaning find the shape shape of a vibrating string once it starts to vibrate simply that what's the shape? Is it a sine wave or any other shape? And that uh, seemingly benign question uh, gave rise to one of the longest scientific debates, maybe of all time. It lasted 50 years, and it involved some of the greatest mathematicians and physicists of that era. Among them, uh, let's say, let's begin with the Bernoulli, Daniel Bernoulli. The Bernoulli's were a dynasty of about several generations of outstanding mathematicians all hailing from the town of Basel in Switzerland. There were at least eight Bernoullis who achieved fame. The most prominent ones were Jacob Bernoulli and um, Daniel Bernoulli, his son. And then there were Jacques Bernoulli, many, many. They were known for their brilliance Uh, capabilities in math. They were also known for their quarrels at home. There were numerous stories about infighting sibling rivalry. They were jealous about their achievements and fought with each other to the end for uh, the most minute technical details of their work. So the whole whole dynasty is very colorful, very, very colorful. In in my previous book, E, the story of a the number, there is a whole chapter on them with the, the the family tree. It's really very much like the Bach family in music, and they lived also around the same time. Anyway, let's go back. So Daniel Bernoulli was the son, the second generation, and then there is Euler, Leonard Euler, and um, D'Alembert, and Lagrange, and these these were the uh, cream and crop of European mathematicians of the 18th century, and they engaged in a bitter debate, and I say bitter, it was colored by personal rivalries and personal barbs, very, very interesting, I, I took some quotations from a book and, and put it in my book illuminating not only the um, technical questions of their discussion, but their personal relations. And their debate was basically centered around one issue. Should a vibrating string be regarded as a succession of pulses traveling back and forth along the string, or is it an up-and-down motion like sine waves? And that simple question turned out to be anything but simple and occupied them for 15 years from about 1730 to 1780. So there's a whole chapter. Now you asked me about the similarity between that and the debate about the nature of the quantum in our own, I say own, (laughs) previous century, around 1925, the big, big, debate that swept almost all physicists into it on the nature of quantum. Is it a continuous, is is an electron, can we view an electron as a particle, or is it a wave, or maybe both? So there are many, many similarities. And interestingly, the um, uh, physicists who participated in that debate of the in, uh, 20th century, many of them were actually involved in music, playing music, like Heisenberg started, he wanted to make a career in uh, in music, and uh, only at the age of 20 or so switched to physics. Max Planck was an accomplished pianist, and so on, and Einstein, of course, with his iconic violin. Unlike uh, the four protagonists of the string debate, the 18th century string debate, as far as I know, only Euler and perhaps Daniel Bernoulli were also uh, involved in playing music as an art. But it's interesting. Why do I? Why did I spend a whole chapter on that subject? Because I wanted to show that mass was influenced by music as much as the other way around. We all know that music has many mathematical elements in it, but few people know that actually
0: music influenced math as much as the other way around. That is surprising. And what was also surprising to me was at about this stage, you introduced something that I would never have expected to hear in this book, or see, read in this book. The idea of the toy, the slinky. And what acoustic principles can one demonstrate with a slinky? <laughs>
1: yeah, that was like a, you know, when I, I, my books, I realized they are meant also to to be fun, not not just to convey information. So I decided after the big spring de- string debate, which is rather technical, and I made a big attempt not to go into too many technical details because that can really wear the patience of the reader. So I, I just try to say the essentials with a minimum of words and formulas. But then I, I realized, well, I have to do something funny now. And this slinky came to mind. Now, slinky was a, a toy. It was meant as a toy. We all know how the slinky kind of gracefully goes down a staircase. Or uh, you can play with it with your two hands. But actually, you can demonstrate a lot of acoustic principles on it. And if you stretch, a st- uh, you, you tie the end of a slinky, to, a, let's say, to a chair on the floor... And go back like a couple of yards and start to move it in, in, with your hand. You can reach the, all the waves, all the standing waves that, uh, Sauveur discovered, all the overtones that Sauveur discovered. You can actually see them, which you cannot in a string because the vibrations are so fast, you can't follow them visually. So, um, as that, that simple slinky is actually a wonderful way to demonstrate acoustics.
0: You know, also, one of the things that I liked about your book was that there's a question that I've probably had for almost as long as I've known about mathematics and music. I've known that when you play a chord in music, you're playing several notes simultaneously, and your ear perceives several notes simultaneously. But when you look at colors, if you mix blue and yellow, you get green. In other words, you play two colors, but you end up with one. And I'd always wondered why this was the case. And I'd like to know, how do the ear and the eye differ with respect to perceiving vibrations?
1: Yes, that's a very interesting uh, question. I I really don't know much about the eye, the physiology of the eye, so I can only answer one, the first half of your question. But the ear, as the the eminent German physicist and physiologist Hermann von Helmholtz discovered, he actually was an anatomist and he dissected an ear and found that the, the cochlea, the inner spiral, has numerous hairs that vibrate, each answers a certain frequency, and then that 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 hair transmits it to the brain, and that there then it's perceived as a, a note with a certain pitch. And because of that structure, if several notes hit you at once, you are able to distinguish and to hear them separately, even though they arrive at the same time. You are able to hear each note, note separately. That's a remarkable gift that the eye does not have. So that actually has a name. It's called Ormslow named after George Ohm, O-H-M, who is much better known for his law in electricity, the relation between voltage, current, and resistance. But that's known as Ohm's law, that the the ear responds to a sound exactly as a Fourier analy- a, 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 a spectrum analysis, analysis should do. And here, uh, if I just can mention Fourier, jo- Joseph Fourier was a French mathematician, who discovered that every periodic function, every graph, basically, that repeats itself again and again, can be looked upon as an infinite sum of sine and cosine waves. So that, that's a major discovery. That means that these sine and cosine waves, or basically a simple harmonic motion, are the building blocks of all sound. Every sound is composed of many, many, many sine waves and the ear amazingly can do that analysis uh, in in the inner ear to distinguish the individual notes even though even when they are played at once as a chord
0: well you know what i'm going to do now is i'm going to skip ahead in your book to the start of the 20th century because music started to go through a revolution at the start of the 20th century. And I think we mostly associate this with Stravinsky and his piece, The Rite of Spring. And what made Stravinsky's Rite of Spring so revolutionary?
1: Well, that's, it was very revolutionary. He decided to uh, break all accepted laws and um now now we are now moving to a different subject which is the rhythm uh, and so again let me back off back 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 off a little bit let's go back um, rhythm is the temporal framework in which a piece is written because all music is takes place in time and so you have to divide time into small units called bars or measures and the Structure of a measure is, is in music. It's called the meter. Two beats per per measure, three beats per measure, and there are ways to make to not, notate that in like refraction, like 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 uh, symbols. But it was assumed that a piece should basically have a constant rhythm at least for so some stretch. The ry- rhythm or, or meter can change occasionally, but eventually the meter should prevail. And I'm simplifying here a little bit. I'm sure some musicians will, 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 will challenge that. But basically, if you listen to Mozart, the chapter, the movement follows a, a given meter. And there are rare exceptions. Sometimes the meter can change, but again, only, only for a while. Well, Stravinsky said, let's, let's forget about that. We can change the meter from bar to bar from measure to measure. And indeed, in the right of string, it, if you look at the score, it's just unbelievable. One score, one measure is five-sevenths five and the other one uh, three-fourths and then on and on. It changes constantly. And that reminded me a lot about the mathematician Bernard Riemann, George Bernard Riemann, who um in around 1850 or so came to the idea that geometry is local there is no one uh, structure to geometry every point in space has its own local geometry that can change from point to point like, if you take a flat sheet of paper, it's basically Euclidean, and follows the Pythagorean theorem, as we know it from, from high school. But if you crumple that page, then the geometry changes, and every point has its own, in, in math, we call it a metric. In music, we call it a meter. But it's, to me, I, I immediately saw the analogy, the similarity. One is in time, and the other one in space. So So Stravinsky did what Riemann did. Stravinsky did to music what Riemann did to Geometry, and that uh, of course the, the public didn't see it that way when the piece was played the first time. Was was, was it can you remind me what year it was? I forgot now in 19 something,
0: something like 1912 or 1910.
1: I think so, sure. yeah, right, yeah. You know, <laughs> there are so many dates in my book, I can't remember all of them, but in 1912, I think it was the premiere was in Paris, it was there was a riot, the, the uh, audience wasn't. Wasn't used to such jarring dissonances and such abrupt meter changes, and uh, according to the French press, Parisian press, there was catcalls and even uh, even there was a, a disturbance, and they had to call the police. I think it might have to do just as much with the um, provocative. Choreography of the piece. It was a ballet, so there was a choreography, and it was very provocative for the time. So we don't know if the only the music or the visual part. But it was it was. Many people think that event. Well, the the opening shot in modern music.
0: Um, you discuss the idea of reference systems as being important in geometry, art, and music. And ha- what role do the reference systems play?
1: Yeah, this, there's a whole chapter in my book on that because that's the prelude to. My, my comparison of art and uh, uh, Schoenberg with Einstein. So let's talk a little bit about re- frames of reference. I, I think you already discussed them in music. But every, every, like in art, for instance, the perspective, that's a geometric system of how a painting should, um, should be done. Because in the Middle Ages, a painting was not done according to what the eye sees, but what the mind imagined. And sometimes in church, uh, in religious paintings, you see people, uh, church officials, depicted according to the importance of their rank in the church, but not according to the geometric rules, how far they are from the eye, from the artist's eye. And so then Leonardo da Vinci and Brunelleschi, around 1400 or so, Invented a system of correct drawing that's perspective, and that basically put a frame of reference to uh, to be available to depict everything refer to it. There is a line at infinity, which is the horizon, and there are parallel lines on, in 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 the real scene become uh, converge on the horizon at a point called the vanishing point. And you were supposed to draw according to that frame of reference. So that frame of reference in art,
0: right? Yes, indeed. Um, I'm not an artist, but I have read about that.
1: Right. And then let me, I, I, you know, as as someone who loves art and math, I can't avoid mentioning the uh, prominent Dutch artist M.C. Escher. I'm sure everyone knows the name. He defied the rules of perspective by drawing several pictures where you can look at it from two different ways, two different points of view. One picture one painting he called Relativity, where you don't know where it's up and down. Every every plane could be up or down or even a wall. And there are two pictures of two, two images in my book, Relativity and Other Worlds. So, the idea of a frame of reference is deeply ingrained in in, in us, even in daily life. You, we all have a frame of reference, our flow. We have a direction which points down to which we all are anchored, and uh, basically, we move in a frame of reference, which is the flat floor under us. So that whole idea of frame of frames of reference plays a fundamental role in math in music, in art, in architecture, ever, ever, anywhere.
0: Uh, I think one of the really important chapters in your book is is one of the final chapters in which what you do is you discuss the two great revolutionaries in physics and music at the start of the 20th century, Albert Einstein and Arnold Schoenberg. And what are the similarities and dissimilarities between the two?
1: Yes. I, 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 let me just elaborate here a little bit. That actually was another... Thing that triggered me to write my book. Um, I tried to, I was trained in classical music as, as an amateur and was quite familiar with the great masters of the 17th, 18th centuries, 19th centuries. But then comes Schoenberg and And as I mentioned already, he devised a whole new system of writing music, and I decided I have to, if I want to write a book about him or about that subject, I'd better listen to some of his music. And it's not easy. But then I read several biographies of him and realized that his ideas are quite similar to the ideas behind general relativity, in in a way. I mean, uh, any analogy has its limits, but just like music, classical music, is anchored to a um, certain key, like we discussed before, a tonality. In Frenberg's music, there is no such a thing. Every tone, every note of the series is only related to the tone preceding it. There is no connection to a tonic whatsoever. You you lack any sense of a reference system. And that immediately, as a mathematician, uh, caught my uh, imagination that that sounds to me like relativistic music. And that's, in fact, the name of that chapter, relativistic music. So forget about the frame of reference. There is none. You only um, owe allegiance to the note before you. And that's pretty much like in general relativity. There is no one universal frame of reference. Every observer has his or her own frame of reference, related only to the infinitesimally close frame of reference next to 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 it. So that 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 uh, that was interesting. Was very intriguing. Very challenging. As I read more and more, I also realized that they had very similar life stories, but that came after I thought about the similarities between their music and physics, not the other way around. So, you know, you, <laughs> you can always find superficial similarities between uh, dates and, and so on. But I, as a side product of my inquiries, I found that they had very similar life stories, lived the same number of years, 76, and... Um, Uh, Both were Jewish, born into Jewish families, renounced their Judaism. Schoenberg renounced his Judaism. Einstein uh, left organized religion. He didn't like the idea that you have to follow religious rules. But late in life, they both returned to their Jewish roots. And Einstein, as I'm sure you know, was asked to serve as the second president of the state of Israel after the death of... Heim Weizmann and he he refused. He said, first of all, he's too old and secondly he, he wasn't he realized he's not he he would not do well being in a political political role. And Schoenberg was offered the, to be the first honorary president of the Rubin Academy of Science, of Music, which was then in Jerusalem, now it's in Tel Aviv. And he accepted, but then he, bad health, ill health prevented him of, of accepting it. So there were many, many similarities. They both liked to tinker with mechanical, mechanical devices, gadgets. Einstein invented with his fellow physicist Leo Szilard a refrigerator, and Schonberg worked on the design of a musical typewriter. There were many, many super similarities, but these were all a, a secondary to the similarity that I thought
0: in between their their legacies. You see. Yeah, but there's a big difference between Einstein and Schoenberg. And the big difference mm-hmm. is that Einstein today, virtually all of his theories have been confirmed and are continuing to be confirmed um I won't say daily but you read in scientific magazines that even more of the phenomena that we're discovering out in the universe black holes merging things like this all go to confirm his theory of general relativity whereas schoenberg just isn't played anymore it's hard to find his music Mm -hmm. his idea of music were rejected and i've got my own theories about that but i'm just curious uh, what your opinion is, because you're the actor. Yes, when,
1: well, that, that's interesting. That's actually the, I think next to last chapter in my book, uh, the, the aftermath. Now, the, the aftermath of relativity and, uh, and of music were actually opposite. Uh, Schoenberg's music was first received with um, a lot of resistance from the public, but then it was embraced by academic musicians, in other words, music professors, or people who who regarded music as their academic profession. And it it eventually became hailed as the compositional method to follow. If you still follow tonality, you were considered an old-fashioned, outdated composer. And then, um, in, after the, I would say around 1950, roughly, the excitement faded. And, um, and I, I, again, I have to be careful because I'm not a professional musician. I can't, I don't want to judge Schoenberg as a success or failure. But yes, you, you, you barely hear him. Or, or, or orchestras occasionally play his music. I, I attended once a concert by the Israel Philharmonic. And the maestro Zubin Meta before they played a, a piece by Schoenberg. before they started, he went and turned to the audience and said, you know, uh, I know that Schoenberg's music is difficult to to listen to, but I promise you, when you leave the concert hall tonight, all of you will be humming his tone series. <laughs> well, as far as I. Record. No one did.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, um, uh, when I was uh, when I was listening to uh, when I was reading your book, there w- something struck me when you uh, when you described Schoenberg's music, and I'm not sure that this is familiar to you, but there's a very famous mystery novel called The Nine Tailors, written by Dorothy Sayers in the 1930s, and it centers around something called change ringing, which is how um, how bells are rung in England, and yes. Possibly elsewhere, and what they're basically doing is they're doing melodic permutations of a theme. And what it struck me that that Schoenberg is doing is just random permutations that don't sound good.
1: Well, he, he, no, I don't think it's random. I think he did, designed the series not at random, but uh, that was his way his way to express what. Classically, was a, a tune or a theme or a, a subject that the music was based on. So he he didn't he didn't know he didn't uh, choose his notes randomly. He composed or structured each series with a full.
0: Um,
1: how should I say? In, in, he, he gave a lot of thought how to arrange these notes. It was not at random, not at all. So I think. The uh, the analogy is not not totally valid.
0: Okay, but I may you... have used a bad word in by saying random, but to the uh, uh, to those of us who are accustomed to walking out of a show or walking out of a concert, humming the melody, there is no melody, and so it sounds random to us.
1: Yes, yes, that, that, that's correct. That I, I absolutely. So let me just go back to you asked how the Einstein and Schoenberg were received. So um, Einstein's relativity was received immediately with great excitement, and even by the general general public. Even though people who did not know anything about science <laughs> recognized Einstein with his, you know, wild mane and uh, saintly look and so on. But then, around 1925, interest in relativity started to wane why because the younger generation of physicists those who argued on the nature of the of quantum theory what we mentioned before they they took the uh, main stage and physics was more and more centered on quantum physics or uh, nuclear physics and less and less about relativity and einstein in a way was at fault because he isolated himself in a, in a, in a golden cage, if, if that's the right expression, believing to the rest of his life in the unified field that uh, mathematics could unite quantum physics and relativity. It's all well known today, so we don't need to go into details. But he, he, the younger generation of physicists, physicists pleaded with him, please join us in developing quantum theory. And he refused. He just uh, went his own way and became very, very isolated. Only in 1960, after he wasn't alive anymore, then interest in relativity start, started to build up again, in part because of the great discoveries in astronomy, quasars and, um, and um, uh, pulsars and so on. So then relativity then started to come back to life. While in Schoenberg's case, just the opposite happened around 1950, I think, by and large, interest in him waned. But again, I say that with caution, because I I hate to, to judge <laughs> people whom I don't know enough to do that. I mean, I'm not a professional musician, but that, that's my, my take on it. In, incidentally, I should also mention... Musical, chain, musical tastes change, like like our perception of things changes. And the most famous example is Bach's, um, Bach's music. He was, for about 50 years after he died, he was regarded as an aloof composer, difficult to listen to, too pedantic, too rigid, too mathematical, in a way. When Haydn, Franz Joseph Haydn, famously said... Bach is the father. We are the children. He didn't mean Johann Sebastian Bach. He meant Carl um, Philipp Emanuel Bach, Bach's second oldest surviving son. So that's very very interesting. You you would think that description perfectly fits the famous Bach, but no. He meant uh, he didn't mean Johann Sebastian Bach. And then only in ninety in the eighteen twenties, I believe, with Mendelssohn playing the St. Matthew's Passion, the great oratorio by Bach um, cantata. Bach finally was put on the lofty pedestal to which
0: we hold him today.
1: So musical tastes change and there might be a revival
0: of Schoenberg, who knows? Well, Ellie, I usually conclude my uh, interviews by, I can't put you on a lofty pedestal, and I hope you're not there, because I hope you're accessible to our listeners. And how can our listener who wants to get in touch with you and maybe talk, uh, ask you questions about the book, things like this, how can they get in touch with you?
1: Um, hmm. (laughs) (laughs) You know why I'm laughing. No you know why I'm laughing. Tell I'm me. getting I'm getting so many emails of uh greeters who um you know what, okay fine. Since I um, <laughs> you asked and I owe you an answer, here's my email address E L I M A O R at earthling dot
0: net. Uh, oh, that, uh, that's my first question. And the second question is, do you have any future projects in which we might be interested and you'd like to talk about?
1: <laughs> Again, you put me on this spot. I, yes, I have plans on another book. I actually started working on it. It's not yet at the point of no return. So, I hate to brag about unfinished business, so let's keep it at that for a while. But uh, we'll see. We'll see.
0: Okay. (laughs) Ellie, thank you very much. And I've enjoyed the interview. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.
1: And uh, have a good evening. You too. Take care. Yes. Bye bye. Bye.